Hello, welcome back, and thank you for listening again to the History of the Congo. Season 2, Episode 8, Independence Immediate, Part 1. Last time, we left the Congolese amidst a rapidly changing world. Their country sat in a continent which had been largely governed by European colonial powers for over 70 years. But this was changing. The power of the old European superpowers was declining. The global reach of France and Britain, although victorious in World War II, was waning. In August 1941, two years into World War II for Britain and four months away from Pearl Harbour, the United States and Britain signed the Atlantic Charter. This document framed the foreign policies of these two countries. Many points of agreement were reached, including free trade and the advancement of social welfare, but for people living under colonial rule, a huge milestone was the principle of self-determination. People living under the rule of another country were to be granted the right to rule themselves, which meant the end of colonialism. With a shift to liberalism, saddled with debt and unable to field the resources required to run an empire, Britain honoured this agreement, and decolonialisation started in sub-Saharan Africa with Ghana in 1956. There was a consensus in the British government that the colonies were on the road to independence, some peacefully, while others, such as Kenya, following years of violence, but for the purposes of our podcast, independent nonetheless. The process in France was very different. During World War II, France had been occupied and initially most of the colonies remained loyal to Vichy France, the proxy government of the Third Reich. As the tide of war changed though, the colonies professed loyalty to de Gaulle's Free France, which was headquartered in London. Basically, they proclaimed loyalty to whomever looked most likely to achieve victory. Within the French Empire, the relationship was fractured and far more tenuous. At the end of the war, de Gaulle needed the support of the colonies to help rebuild France, and gave concessions including the end of forced labour and ceded limited authority to local powers to help maintain his aim. But ultimately this didn't work. People in the colonies had had enough. They wanted full independence. And conflict inevitably ensued. A particularly violent example was Algeria. The process of Algerian independence was not a template that anyone wished to repeat. It was basically a civil war. With Algerians in conflict against the French expats and the French government. This escalated beyond the French government's control and by 1958, coinciding with the Belgian Congo municipal elections, France had sent half a million soldiers in a bloody campaign against constant uprisings. In 1958 the situation was apparent to both the Congolese and the Belgians. Independence was rife throughout Africa and the lack of power that the previous colonial rumours had when conflict arose was transparent to all. Cameras and news reporters now made events in the colony extremely transparent, within a matter of days. Amongst the Belgian politicians there was no appetite for films and reporting of modern firepower used on people without the means to fight back. Add the Belgian article regarding Congolese political freedom to this, written three years earlier, and the momentum was building. Even if the Belgian Congo authorities had the stomach to repress dissent militarily, as they had in the past, they knew that the uprising this time would be bigger, more violent and more expensive. The wider Belgian population would not stomach this. Any party endorsing this would lose power at the next election. 
in the midst of this geopolitical turmoil, the colonial authorities decided to press ahead with the municipal elections. These would provide a Congolese judicial voice to the growing cities, mimicking the power the traditional chiefs had in rural areas. With increasing urbanisation, cities were now growing much more rapidly, and before the political landscape had evolved beyond recognition, the Belgians had hoped that these municipal elections would offer a limited transfer of power, but they were as a spark to dry timber. The Congolese knew what was happening throughout Africa, and in their minds the link between these local elections and independence was unequivocal. In the minds of the political parties and the Congolese, the municipal elections were their voice on the direction of the Congo after independence. They would determine nothing less than who would fill the power vacuum when the Belgians left. For the ambitious, this was an opportunity not to be missed. The Congolese in positions of authority quickly formed organisations to stand for power. But these organisations were not born of organisations or hierarchies introduced by the Belgians. The municipal boundaries had been drawn up in recent history. They were straight lines through ancestral lands. They meant little to the people. A sense of belonging, kinship and attachment to someone's kin and their land takes a long time, particularly in a culture where ancestors are revered. People knew where their affinities lay long before the Belgian Congo administrators lay down their territories. They turned, mostly, to the African kingdoms of history. Here we can go back a little and remind ourselves of earlier episodes. A lot has happened since we talked about the pre-colonial empires, and now is a good time to revisit to this. No longer consigned to history, they are once again about to come to the fore. The first kingdom we met was the Kingdom of the Congo, with its western boundary on the Atlantic coast. This is the Congo with a K, rather than today's Congo which starts with a C. We can surmise that the region is called the Congo with a C today, because the Congo with a K were the first peoples and lands that the Europeans met, way back in the 15th century. These were the first peoples of today Congos to meet the Portuguese as far back as 1490. For hundreds of years after this meeting, it was a sovereign kingdom. The Kingdom of the Congo had a central power base, with a federation of member states unified to an extent as to grant the Mani Congo, or King, a great degree of power. The Kingdom was an international state that allied variously with the Portuguese and the Dutch, and was represented by international diplomats at the Vatican, the Medici Court and Portugal. As a united kingdom, it was able to enter the power struggle of the European powers and defend its peoples. But in 1665, at the Battle of Umbuila, the kingdom and its allies lost to a force led by the Portuguese to the south. This was a disaster. Much of the kingdom's nobility and leadership fell in a rout after the Manicongo was killed in a frontal assault. The kingdom was left without a clear leader, and the federation crumbled into civil war allowing others, such as the Yaga and the European slave traders, to extract wealth, most alarmingly represented by the sale of its people. There were glimmers of unification, but ultimately the nobles of the kingdom were complicit with outside powers, and more wedded to their own internal conflicts than unity to allow the resurrection of the kingdom. When the colonial borders were set up at the end of the 18th century, the peoples of the Congo were separated across the new political boundaries of Leopold's Congo Free State Portuguese Angola, the French Congo, and German Cameroon. But the people never forgot this ancient kingdom. They identified with its traditions, culture, and Kikongo language, and in 1950 formed their own political party, ABACO, initially a cultural organisation to protect their language as a rebuttal to the spread of Lingala from the centre of the country. 
Abako dominated the Belgian Congo, Western Bas Congo province, and was led by Kasafubu. Their area included the capital of Kinshasa, then called Leopoldville. We also met the Luba Kingdom, with its ancestral home located in the east. This ancient kingdom emerged in the 14th century as a group of unified chiefdoms. This ancient kingdom emerged in the 14th century as a group of unified chiefdoms. It was run by princes of an extended family with kinship through common ancestry. They were ruled by the Balopwe and a powerful constitution maintained through oral tradition. This constitution centered on the will of the ancestors providing a religious council of advisers to ensure that the Malopwe complied with the concept of Bumuntu. Bumuntu required a person of authenticity, good heart and dignity and held the Malopwe to account. The Luba also had a sophisticated system of government. This was in effect a federation of broadly loyal chiefdoms who were loyal to the centre, similar to feudalism. This combination of a larger association within a federation as well as a degree of autonomy was, a, was appealing to chiefs outside of the empire. This enabled the Luba expansion to much of today's South Central DRC. In 1958, two political parties emerged from the Luba diaspora. The MNCK in southern Kasai, led by Albert Kalonji, and the Balubakat in northern Katanga, headed by Jason Sendwe. With 1.4 million Baluba, these represented over 10% of the 13.5 million Congolese. The Luba Empire had spread across both the southern Kasai and southeastern provinces which the Belgians had created. The final group of the largest three ethnicities were the Lunda peoples. The Lunda Empire had emerged from the heartland of the Luba in the 17th century, formed by the son of a Luba royal who travelled southwest from the Luba heartland to the headwaters of the Kasai River in the present-day province of Kasai Occidental. The Lunda were more militaristic, and after the Luba-Lunda schism, grew to be larger than the Luba lands, stretching south all the way to Lake Mweru. There were similarities in the Luba-Lunda government systems, in that the Lunda retained the federalist structure, but the Lunda also adopted a system of total inheritance, which was a shift away from Luba governance. Recent scholars have argued that they should be studied together as a Luba-Lunda people. This appears to be unmirrored by identity, as we shall see in the late 1950s, as with many historical events. The schism of the past was to have far-reaching consequences. In the 17th century, the Luba-Lunda states grew to stretch through Katanga to modern-day Zambia. They maintained trade routes through which Europeans and Arabs stretched coast to coast across Central Africa and to Madagascar. But they struggled to maintain their power through the turmoil of the 19th century. We have seen the devastation caused by the Arab Swahili traders in the 1850s and coupled with wars with the western Novimbunda and Chokwe peoples in Angola, by the time the Belgian colonialists reached these lands, all of their power had but ebbed away. One of these conflicts in particular was to rear its ugly head just at the end of the 1950s. At the start of the 20th century, the Luba-Lunda lost a war with the Chokwe, who came east from Angola. They were armed with guns obtained from the Portuguese traders and used this to their advantage to help them through victory. As with wars throughout history, this created refugees, and thousands fled to escape the fate of persecution or being sold on to slaver traders. These refugees included Luba peoples, who settled on the Lulua River Valley in southern Kasai. In the 1920s and 30s, the Belgians were intent on mapping the hundreds of tribal ethnicities in the Belgian Congo, 
Some of them created a narrative that exacerbated what were previously minor differences. These refugees came to be seen as a separate people, called the Lulua, which was then the term used to identify them by the Belgian authorities. With a legacy of refugee history, we can imagine that these Luba, who settled in the Lulua Valley, were economically disadvantaged to the Luba peoples. The Luba people, whose families had settled there for generations, would have enjoyed a legacy of progress. This was not recognised by the Belgians, and the Lulua, as these peoples were now designated, were seen as lazy compared to the industrious Luba. In 1952, the well-meaning colonial territorials attempted to raise the living standards of the Lulua to that of the more affluent Luba. This was to be assisted through the support of the Lulua organisation, called the Lulua Frere, or the Brothers of the Lulua. A few years later, this organisation was to have consequences for the whole of the DRC. Having reacquainted ourselves with the pre-colonial empires and federations from earlier episodes, we can return our attention back to 1957, lest we forget the first municipal elections ever held in the Belgian Congo are due to be held. In the capital Kinshasa, sitting in the heartland of the Bakongo, we found the people represented by Abaco. The descendants of the Kingdom of the Congo supported a party led by the Congo nationalist Kasavubu. With only local mayoral elections to campaign for, he stood for position in Dendale, a commune of the capital then known as Leopoldville. But the rhetoric of the campaign was not local. It was not fought on local issues that we would recognise. In response to Van Bilsen's article on a 30-year independence plan for the Congo, Kasavubu and Abaco included the following in their local election manifesto. Our patience has already surpassed the boundaries. Since the hour has come, it is necessary to grant us, even today, emancipation, rather than to delay it again for 30 years. This emancipation was for all Congolese. The Abaco election slogan of independence immediate was ubiquitous in the elections, and with hope and the opportunity to officially have a representation, the voters gave Abaco a landslide. In their victory, 133 out of 170 elected council members were Abaco. In addition, six of the nine important burgmasters, or mayors, were elected Bakongo politicians, including Kasavubu himself. With such results, Abaco grew in confidence as did its supporters. The Bakonga openly started to talk of a newly independent kingdom of the Congo, unifying their people spread across northern Angola, Cameroon and Congo-Brazzaville. But the link with the DRC as a whole was ambiguous. Rhetoric stretched from a complete Congo, with a K, secession, to a tenuous hint as a future where the kingdom of the Congo would govern the whole DRC in a kind of benevolent hierarchy. Simply put, Abaco was struggling to reconcile its Bakongo identity with the borders of the Belgian Congo as a whole. In the centre, Patrice Lumumba and the MNC HAL had no such issues. Their campaign was crystal clear. He specifically mentioned that his campaign was to struggle on behalf of all of the Congolese people. He was a man born with the gift of speech to promote this. Wherever he went, he was able to articulate the hardships and injustices that had faced the Congolese since the Europeans arrived. Such a description does not give credit to the power of his eloquence, and what status this would give him on his own people. His own words will suffice for this. What follows is an adapted extract from his poem, Weep, O Beloved Congolese Brother, which tells of the sufferings that had been endured. O Congolese, 
a human beast of the fields for centuries. Your ashes are scattered to all the winds of heaven. And you once built funeral temples where the executioners sleep in eternal slumber, are persecuted and hunted down, driven from your villages, conquered in battles where the law of the most powerful in those barbarous centuries of rape and carnage meant slavery or death for you. You took refuge in those deep forests, where the other death lay in wait behind its feverish mask, beneath the fang of the great cat, or in the foul and cold embrace of the serpent slowly crushing you. And then they came, more cunning, more crafty, more rapacious, giving you trinkets in exchange for your gold, raping your women, besotting your warriors with drink, driving your sons and daughters abroad his boats, the tom-tom throbbed from village to village, bearing your grief afar, sowing confusion, telling of the great departure for distant shores, where cotton is God and the dollar king, condemning you to forced labour like a beast of burden, from dawn to dusk beneath a fiery sun, to make you forget that you were a man. They taught you to sing God's praises, and all these hymns, setting your cavalry to rhythm, made you hope for a better world. But in your heart as a human being, all you asked for was your right to live and share your happiness. Sitting around the fire, your eyes full of dreams and anguish, singing songs that told of your heavy heart, joyous at times too, when the sap mounted. You danced wildly in the damp of evening, and that is when Jazz was born. As magnificent, sensual, and manly as a voice of brass, a powerful music poured forth from your pain, a music admired today throughout the world, forcing everyone to be respectful, telling him in a loud voice that henceforth this country is no longer his, as in the old days. You thus allowed the brothers of your race to lift their heads and look upon the happy future that promises deliverance. The shores of the great river, full of promises, henceforth belongs to you. This earth and all its riches henceforth belong to you. And the fiery sun, high in a colourless sky, will burn away your pain. Its searing rays will forever dry the tears your forefathers shed, tormented by the tyrannical masters on this soil that you still cherish. And you will make the Congo a free and happy nation, in the heart of our giant ancestral Africa. Wow. Powerful words indeed. This one poem in the MNC newspaper encapsulates the years of struggle, hurt and oppression which had faced the Congolese, but also showed their ambitions, achievements and positive future. In the words of Raphael Mendo, when Lumumba spoke, no one wanted to go away, even when it was raining, even when it was raining, even at night, the people stayed and the people listened. Patrice Lumumba was gaining in popularity throughout the Belgian Congo, particularly in the centre, around Kisangani, then called Stanleyville. This was the area in which he was born, but from these roots he was beginning to attract international attention. In December 1958, Lumumba was invited to Ghana by President Kwame Nkrumah. Nkrumah was a totemic personality for Africa at this time. He was head of the first post-colonial independent sub-Saharan African state, and he passionately espoused the ideals of pan-Africanism and a prosperous future. He saw a new vision for Africa, free from outside influence, 
Lumumba agreed with these ideals entirely. He was energised and excited at the possible road ahead. Lumumba returned to the Congo and spoke to the assembled people at a rally in Kinshasa. Immediate independence was the goal. There was no more ambiguity. The direction was clear. All that remained was how to achieve it. But even at this time in the Congo, not everything was about politics. People were preparing for the start of 1959 with New Year's Eve celebrations and parties. A football match, or soccer game, was planned in Kinshasa to be held on the first Sunday of the new year and 20,000 people were going to watch. In the context of these normalities, Abaku and Kasavubu planned a New Year's rally, also to be held that day on the 4th of January. They approached this in line with colonial rules and a planning letter was sent, but Christmas and the New Year interrupted the authorities administration department and the letter reached the town hall only on Friday the 2nd of January. The Kinshasa authorities asked Kasavubu to delay, to allow organisational preparation, to which he obliged. He delayed the event to the 18th of January. This also had the added bonus of enabling any speakers at the rally to react to a much-anticipated statement from Brussels on the Congo's very future, due to be released on the 13th. But this admin delay, and the department's Christmas and New Year holidays, had enormous repercussions. With the lack of time to communicate to participants, and certainly no social media, the change in date did not filter through to the audience. On Sunday the 4th, people gathered near the YMCA, which was the planned venue. Kasavubu and other leaders went to tell them that the event had been postponed, but the crowd refused to disperse. Their desire for independence was intertwined with this meeting. The crowd decided that the meeting had been banned as it was a threat to the Belgian Congo. As more and more people arrived, the people got more and more angry. Trams that ran through the city were blocked, and in frustration a passing tram driver remonstrated with the crowd blocking his way by using force. This may have been the norm in the past, but things were different now. The raising of his hand was the catalyst for crowd violence. It was the straw that broke the camel's back. The crowd turned on him in assault. The anger and confidence of numbers outweighed their fear of reprisals. But the violence didn't stop there. Other avenues for rage were looked for, and the target became Europeans and anything associated with them, including their businesses. After full time at the football stadium, the fans arrived at the unrest. This was hugely significant. Buoyed by the game, and agitated at what they saw, thousands joined in the protests. A huge riot ensued. Motorists were hauled from their cars, passers-by were attacked and businesses were destroyed. The relatively small Kinshasa police force was sent to establish order. The Belgian police commissioners attempted to stop the riots by force, but they were equipped only with a limited number of small arms, and they were forced to retreat under a hail of stones and other missiles. The victory gave the crowd a renewed confidence, and the fires of rage were stoked further and further. Much of the people in Kinshasa joined in the riots now, rioting, looting and assaulting. For three days Europeans in the city hid in fear. The Portuguese bakeries and Greek merchants, seen as easy targets, were particularly hard hit. The lack of Greek colonialism, at least in modern history, did not deter the rioters. They were beyond reasoning now. As a last resort, and perhaps inevitably, the force publique was brought in. They opened fire on the crowds with rifles, 
Official figures record 49 Congolese and 15 European deaths, but unofficially the death rate is estimated at around 300, with many Congolese holding informal burials to mourn their dead. This violence was a huge shock to everyone. Things would never be the same again. The colonial authorities were aghast at the destruction wrought on their modern, beautiful city. They had thought that they were well liked, and that the colony was a success. But this was transparently wrong now. The Congolese knew that united they represented a formidable power. The more astute colonials mourned the loss of face more than the damage. They knew that with only about 125,000 Belgians in the entire colony, power was only granted by tacit acceptance. They would not be able to hold back the tide of mass insurrection. This was not lost on the government in Belgium. The Brussels announcement on the 13th of January 1959 reflected this. Both the government and the king explicitly endorsed the independence of the Congo. In a break from history, the king was more direct in his support for independence than the government. King Badawin was sensitive to Leopold III's support for the Germans. He was more progressive than his father, but he was conscious that the legitimacy of the Belgian monarchy was under scrutiny at home. The Belgian Congo was now finite as an entity. With an end in sight, the peoples of the Lower Congo moved their loyalty to the Congolese parties that had only just been formed. Around Kinshasa, the Abako party was joined by the PSA, formed in the Bandandu region, just southeast of the capital. PSA was a socialist party, who importantly had an extremist wing, not against the use of violence to gain independence. This was never realised, but gave evidence to the strength of thought. In these regions, the vast majority of people felt no obligation to the Belgian colony whatsoever. They refused to pay colonial taxes, and only took direction from the new Congolese political parties. In the Western Congo, independence had been decided upon by consensus, regardless of the authorities. In the eastern borders of the Belgian Congo, some 2,004 kilometres away from Kinshasa, other conflicts were emerging. The Bakongo and Abaco had no presence here. These were the lands of the Hutu, the Tutsi and the Twa, whom we have met before. The Rwanda and Burundi mandates, or kingdoms, were unique from other areas for two reasons. Firstly, they had managed to retain a greater sense of pre-colonial kingdomness, meaning proximity to the royal court enabled power. And secondly, these lands had an ethnic distinction. Recognising a huge and clumsy generalisation, the Hutu, representing about 85% of the people, were of Bantu origin. The Tutsi, representing 14% of the population, were Neolithic in origin. Lastly, the Twa, with only 1% of the population, were Pygmies, ancestors of the people who had lived in the lands long before. There was social mobility between the groups, with marriage between nobles of the two largest groups. With centuries of shared geography, they shared a language and culture, and scholars propose that the distinction between the two peoples was blurred. The colonial system, however, espoused the differences. During colonialism, the Tutsi were perceived as the natural leaders in the region, and they became, and I quote, associated with central government and power. Social mobility lessened, and the Tutsi settled into this role, perceiving themselves as the natural minority leaders. Identity cards were even issued which stated the ethnicity of individuals. Such clumsy categorizations and the real-world impact this had on individual opportunities encouraged them and us thinking.
by 1957, nearly two years before the Kinshasa riots, Hutu resentment was captured in the form of a Hutu manifesto presented on a United Nations visit to the region. This denounced the authority of the minority Tutsi and wanted to abolish any reference to ethnicity in official papers. As independence became more and more realistic, the Tutsi started to engage in the process with an assumption that they would lead post-colonial politics. In line with the creeping equality of the times, however, the Tutsi proposition allied the colonial regime to the Hutu cause, and sympathies lay with what was now seen as the oppressed Hutu majority. In November 1959, these tensions erupted. In what has been called the Rwandan Revolution, the Hutu rose up against the Tutsi. There was a series of riots and arson attacks on Tutsi homes, following the attack of the only Hutu sub-chief, Dominique Mbonyumotwa, by Tutsi extremists. The king and Tutsi leadership did defend themselves as best they could, but with a little Belgian support the Hutu succeeded in their revolution. Ultimately, over 100,000 Tutsi refugees fled the violence to the Congo, where they settled as best they could, including to the highlands of the Kivu provinces where they would raise cattle. These were the Banyumalengi, immigrants to the then Belgian Congo identified as Tutsis from Rwanda. They were not the first such settlers, and they joined 19th century Banya Rwanda peoples who had arrived earlier. Remember the Banya Malangi people. They will be important in subsequent episodes. Many Tutsi fled to Uganda where they were welcomed, but were acutely aware that they would not be granted full Ugandan citizenship. But in their minds, many of them still viewed themselves as the rightful leaders of Rwanda, and this sentiment would never leave them. So the Belgian Congo authorities now had the western provinces in open descent of colonial rule, and the eastern states in effectively civil war, with thousands of refugees fleeing localised ethnic conflict. But still, there was more. In the southern province of Kasai, a Luba clerk had seen a Belgian proposal to resettle the Luba from the prosperous land around the capital Kananga to support the Lulua. Ethnic tensions increased, and violent demonstrations erupted from August 1959. Kalonji, the leader of the MNCK, the Luba Nationalist Party that had split from Lumamba's Congolese nationalist MNCL, was imprisoned by the Belgians in an attempt to stop the conflict. This did not help. War erupted in November 1959 between the Lulua and the Luba. This spread wherever Lulua and Luba lived together, through the Kasai, Katanga, and even in the capital Kinshasa. A particular tinderbox was Katanga, which housed many Baluba who had migrated for work in the southwestern Katanga mines. These were viewed as opportunists and with suspicion by not only the Lulua but also the majority Lunda. There was not enough identification to a unified Congo to see through the empires of pre-colonial times. These had existed for hundreds of years before the Belgians gained authority starting in the west, only 75 years earlier in 1885. In October 1959, the MNCL held its National Congress in Kisangani, Lumamba's home. Here, its leader Lumamba used his rhetoric to show his anger at the colonial situation and inflamed the crowd to riot. Property was destroyed and 26 people were killed, with over 100 Congolese and Belgians injured. So the Belgians now looked on at their colony, which during 1959, in one year, had moved from a well-ordered land in their eyes to a country in the midst of widespread unrest. In the West, 
Abaco had given a voice and a channel for the pride of the Bakongo and the ancient kingdom, with Abaco and the PNC both engaging the peoples in the western region. People no longer answered to Belgian Congo rule. In the south, violence had erupted between the Lulua and the Luba, which was tearing society apart. These tensions were spilling into the wealthy Katanga mining areas as peoples had moved from their ancestral homelands to support colonial industries. And in the centre of the country, anti-European riots had ensued from Lumumba's speech, with over 100 casualties. Finally, in the east, the Hutu-Tutsi tensions led to a revolution, and over 100,000 Tutsis fled the violence in Rwanda. This included the pastoral peoples who settled in the cooler, greener hills suitable for their cattle, where they remained as a minority, retaining their Tutsi heritage and language. It was now a question of when, not if, independence would happen. If the Belgians would not leave the Congo, the Congo would leave them. A conference was planned, starting January 1960, to set the plans for departure as soon as possible. It was held in Brussels, and 96 Congolese delegates attended alongside 55 Belgian delegates. But of note, only 12 of the Congolese had education beyond high school, and their average age was 35. This was an enormous and serious burden to be placed on the shoulders of young and experienced men, and they were all men. But nevertheless, several key points were agreed. The Belgians were to retain two military bases at Kamina in southeastern Katanga and Katona in the far western Bas-Congo provinces. These bases had been set up in 1954 as Belgian national redoubts in the wake of another invasion, but they were also strategically placed to protect the vital Katanga mines in their capital. The Belgians knew the Soviet-American Cold War was warming up and the Congo was to be kept with the West. The talks also set out the political structure of the independent Congo as a unified state. This would be governed by a chamber of deputies and a senate appointed through democratic elections to be held in May. Crucially, and finally, they included resolution number one. Full independence was to be granted on the 30th of June 1960. There was to be no 30-year plan or even a five-year plan. Faced with civil unrest and violence, the Belgians were leaving. In four months' time. So that was that. 75 years after Leopold II established ownership of the Congo Free State, Belgium was relinquishing formal control. There was only four months to go, and Congolese and Belgians alike, as well as corporations and international geopolitics, needed to prepare. And with that cliffhanger... We shall wait again until our next meeting. We have now seen what led to independence. Now we must turn to the final run-up. This was a critical period for the Democratic Republic of the Congo, the name that would soon be used to represent this land. We shall see that in what will be the last episode of this season. So, until next time, safe travels. (laughs) 